What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The NCAA Final Four is taking place this weekend, and that brings me to where it all began, right here on the Northwestern University campus in the Chicago suburb of Evanston. It was here at the original Patton Gym where Northwestern hosted the very first NCAA Final in 1939. The University of Oregon won it, and what do you know, they're back at it again this year. On to other items now. The Raiders have the go-ahead on their move to Las Vegas. The Bay Area sports guy, Steve Berman, discusses the ramifications. NBA sharpshooter Craig Hodges tells his story of a basketball career cut short after two championships with the Chicago Bulls. Was the 10-year vet over the hill, or was it his political activism? What's in an NBA logo, and whose is best? We'll find out from SB Nation's Charlotte Wilder. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran reviews preparations for the Final Four at the University of Phoenix Stadium. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, you can log on to the Oakland Raiders website and the frequently asked questions section could overwhelm you. The team is releasing details for season ticket holders to make sense of the move to Vegas. The front page of that website includes a brash new dramatic video with cameras circling the new stadium that will be the Raiders home in 2020. The team is already taking $100 deposits for the right to season tickets in Sin City. Plans at this point are for the team to play in Oakland at the Coliseum in 2017 and 18. 2019 remains up in the air. In Atlanta, Falcons officials are sweating out what could be another delay in the opening of their new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The issue, again, complications with the complex roof structure that has already forced two delays in targeted opening dates. We should know in the coming week if a July 30th opening is still accurate. Also in Atlanta, the Braves christen their new home, SunTrust Park, with an exhibition game Friday against the Yankees. Crews were rushing all week to button up last-minute preparations. In fact, concrete was barely dry in parking lot walkways leading to the ballpark. The Braves' regular season opener is set for Friday, April 14th against the Padres. The Colorado Rockies have signed a new stadium lease that will keep them in Coors Field through the year 2047. The agreement with the State Metropolitan Baseball District was reached just one day before the team's original lease was set to expire. 
The deal gives the Rockies the option to develop a plot of land adjacent to the ballpark as another way to generate revenue. And a Seattle City Council committee continues to look at options to bring a new arena to the city. The two proposals gaining the most traction are redeveloping the established key arena or building a new venue in the downtown Soto district. The city is often mentioned as landing spots for either a new NHL or NBA franchise. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Well, it is all buttoned up now in the Bay Area. The Raiders eventually will end up in Las Vegas. So many angles to this story. We're going to go into it and dig into it with Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy, and uh, talk a little bit about this. Steve, now your beat predominantly is on the 49ers side of the football side. Why don't we start there? Are the Niners going to get a windfall of some kind here? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It'll definitely help them in a certain way just because there's no competition for the time being until the NFL decides market's too big and, you know, maybe we'll put a team in the city of San Francisco or Oakland or or somewhere nearby. But in terms of what Jed York said, they're not thinking that they're going to get a lot of fans. However, their general manager said, you know, hey, our our train is uh, rolling. You know, if you want to hop on, go ahead to Raiders fans. And Mm -hmm. and that that is actually a a big part of what happened in the 80s when the Raiders went to L.A. A lot of fans, you know, remain Raiders fans, but a lot of them were upset. And the 49ers became the best team in, in all of North American pro sports, really, with Joe Montana and Bill Walsh and everyone else. And winning Super Bowls and, you know, double-digit win seasons for like almost 20 years. So a lot a lot of people migrated to the 49ers. So when the Raiders actually moved back to Oakland, their fan base was still loyal and rabid, but it was I, I think it was smaller. And it's really been tough for them to fill the stadium and, and to prevent blackouts from occurring on local TV until really until recent years when they started buying up the tickets. And then last year when they – the Raiders finally became good, and, and that's, I guess, really the, the one of the real tragedies of this. The Raiders fans have been suffering through bad football for over a decade. They finally get good, and now they're going to leave. You know, we're going to be seeing a lame duck situation here, Steve. We've seen that in Houston. We've seen it to a degree with the Baltimore situation. We remember the horrible images associated with Baltimore, the midnight pullout and all of that. Uh, just how ugly could some of this get? It could get pretty ugly. It, there's a lot of pressure on the team to win and win early because right now fans are pretty upset and there's five months until the regular season. The only thing really keeping fans hooked to the team locally is the fact that they are an exciting team with a bright future with a one of the best young quarterbacks in the game, Derek Carr. And so th- after all the suffering, you know, a lot of the fans are thinking, man, I don't want to jump ship now when they're good. I mean, what if they win the Super Bowl? But if they start, you know, one and three, one and four, something like that, because the NFL, things can get tricky. You know, Derek Carr mm-hmm. gets hurt and all of a sudden it's a pretty average team. If they start slow, you could see what happened with Houston when they tried to stay for a, a couple of years at least, I think maybe even three. And in that first year, their attendance was the worst in the league. They had their last game only 15,000 fans. There's really no reason for them not to jump ship if things get bad. And if things get bad early, it could get ugly. 2017 and 2018 are locked in. 2019, however, the last year before the new Dome Stadium will be ready in Vegas, 
That is another matter. Right now, that's an open question. Is there any chance that the Raiders could end up in Levi's Stadium for that year? Yeah, that's definitely one of the options that people have brought up. And, I mean, that's kind of the running deal around here anyway. Levi Stadium is has had its issues over the first few years of existence. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, why didn't the Raiders and 49ers share the stadium to begin with? Since it's so difficult to build a stadium, especially in California, I mean, with the red tape and the amount of money it takes and the unwillingness of most municipalities to put in any money to help these, you know, rich team owners build a stadium. Actually, the Raiders have never really wanted to share Levi's. The 49ers, I think, uh, would rather they didn't, but I think wouldn't put up too much of a fight if that's what the NFL wanted to happen for a short period of time. So that definitely is an option. But my thoughts on it are I, I see them going to Las Vegas at least a year early and maybe playing in Sam Boyd Stadium because unless they're a championship team, I just don't see a situation where the fans are going to keep supporting the team. And Raiders fans are not. That's one thing about uh migration from team to team Raiders fans are pretty staunch anti-Niner fans you know mm-hmm. they, they they don't like the 49ers at all so if things are kind of rocky and then they're going to go to Levi's I don't see many Raiders fans supporting the team at all in 2019 well you know there is one stadium situation that really interests me and that is Cal They've redone Memorial Stadium. They are deep in debt. They could certainly use the money. They're almost $500 million in debt there. That would seem like a good fit. Would that work? It's interesting. It's it's up on a hill. I don't know if you've been to a game at Memorial. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a nice little spot. There's actually fans that watch it uh the uh, the cheapskate hill or whatever they call it up there where you, you you can watch without buying a ticket but it is an option i mean another option too i mean i think actually an option that might even make more sense than that is this is stanford stadium which is is pretty much like a miniature pro stadium it's really nice there but it only mm-hmm. seats about forty two thousand. uh so in in that case it might just be a deal where they would say all right well let's just uh do some minor upgrades to Sam Boyd Stadium and UNLV, UNLV and, and just move to Vegas early and start this Las Vegas journey. Steve, very interesting to get the update on this. People keep an eye on you, Bay Area sports guy, and you'll keep them informed. Steve, as always, thanks for the visit. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. It is a pleasure. Steve Berman is our guest. Now, coming up, a conversation with 10-year NBA veteran Craig Hodges. He has a new book entitled Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. And that is next on SB Nation Radio. you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need.
One of the great rivalries in professional basketball can be found between two cities that are 90 miles away, Chicago and Milwaukee. Very few players have played on both sides of that rivalry, but our next guest is a guy who has played on both, Craig Hodges. He was a standout with the Bucks, And then later on, of course, he helped the Bulls to two championships in a uh, 10-year NBA career, which ended after that second NBA championship. And uh, from that point on, Craig was unable to find work in the NBA. He has some theories about why that was, and he made that into a book called Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Uh, Craig, it is great to visit with you. Congratulations on this book. What are the conclusions that you have drawn regarding why it became difficult for you to find work in the NBA? Uh, I know you were involved in social issues quite a bit. Was that the gist of it? Well, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for, you know, the invite and always it's um it's a responsibility, and, and for me, it's also um, something that I hold dearly as far as being able to speak to people about my career and what happened. And part of me writing the book was to let people know from my position on what went down and then put the facts out there and let let the reader have their say on what they felt happened. Because when, when I say that I was blackballed from the NBA for taking up a position for poor people, black people, and people were disenfranchised. When I speculate about it, it seems like it's um, sour grapes as far as uh, he just wanted to play some more. When in fact, I just say, well, let me put the facts out here. You do the research. I was 32 years, 32 years of age. I didn't have any type of serious injuries or anything. So I was still able to play the game and no one was able to shoot the ball better than me. So the name of the game is basketball. So it was just, um, it was weird how it went down, but in hindsight, everything is for the lessons that God puts in front of you, and, and I'm blessed to be here to, and able to talk about it. Well, shooting was never an issue. You won the NBA three-point shooting contest three times and actually right. defended it a fourth time with uh, without a team. I think you're the only player to ever appear in that contest with no team behind you. Is that correct? Yes, and, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where – it's bittersweet, man, because a lot of times, like right now even, um, you know, I still work out. I'm coaching at my old high school, and it's it's still difficult to get the uh, competitive juice out of me. <laughs> so still, I still have, you know, certain mindsets about how the game should be played, so it's hard for me to really watch the game and not be critical about certain things, especially, you know, just basic fundamental stuff that, a lot, of, a lot of us are missing in as far as how we talk again. You were one of those who was involved in social issues. So the things we've seen, say, with right. Colin Kaepernick, that is not new. We've had previous generations. Right. Uh, I don't think it drew as much attention, perhaps, as we saw in the Kaepernick case. What was your reaction right. to what has happened with Kaepernick in, in light of your own background and career? Well, you know, I applaud him for being courageous enough at this point in his career, knowing that the ramifications, because he has the history of what happened to me, he has the history of what happened to Muhammad Ali. So it's understood that, you know, he, he's a student of history, 
He's also a student of nonviolent protests. He's a student of civil unrest. He's a student of, you know, human rights violations. And I understand where he's coming from, and I applaud him for that stance that he's taken. And I want us to, who are of like mind, to support him at every right and every cause that we can to be able to make sure that people know that he's not by himself. In 1992, the Chicago Bulls won their second championship. You were on that team, and you met with President Bush. You were carrying with you an envelope, which had a message in it, and you gave that to President Bush. Remind us what that envelope was about. Well, you know, first I want to say the reception that I received at the White House, it was probably one of the most you know, enlightening experiences for me and as far as being able to go to the to the White House and, and get a chance to meet with the president and give the issues of poor people and people of color. And that's what the letter contained, asking the president to consider the issues of poor people, people who are disenfranchised, and to consider our issues the same way foreign policy issues are considered. And he, he received it from the standpoint of telling me that he would he would read it and he was real cool, man. So from that standpoint, it was nothing but respect. It was a great opportunity for me. And being a student of history myself, I knew that we may not get a chance to go back to the White House. That was my only chance to go. So I wanted to make sure I did the right thing when I went. It's interesting because professional basketball players are athletes who get a very strong spotlight. And I think a question for every player is, how am I going to use that? I'd like you to talk about how you made that decision. You know, really, really, like I tell everyone, I'm a, I'm a baby of the civil rights movement. My mom was very strong in the movement. She was secretary for the organization that was Dr. King's affiliate in the south suburbs of Chicago. So for me, it was almost something I think that I was put on at a young age and that the day that I went to the White House was a fulfillment of all those days when we marched when I was eight years old when I went to Long Beach State and had a chance to study what was going on in my childhood that I didn't really understand. It was just us doing things, you know, and not realizing that we were actually changing the course of American history from the standpoint of civil unrest that I was a part of as an eight-year-old. And then Mm -hmm. as I got older and started considering our position in the society and, and what I could do to elevate that, it only said well with me to be able to utilize that premise and that foundation from basketball to be able to speak to the issues concerning my community. And I didn't I didn't feel like it, I had any choice. So really, I was raised and taught to do what I did. Not so much that it really was something that I said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. But I think it, you know, my life has just channeled me in that direction. What type of reaction are you getting to the book, Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter? Who are you hearing from and what are they saying? It's been it's been a great reception, man. It, it, it's blown my mind, actually, to see the cross-section of people that have read it and had enjoyment in reading it. And, then, you know, one of the problems I had initially in, starting it, in just getting it started was I was too focused on what people would think and who was going to be my reading audience and, and all of these things as opposed to when I got to the point and just said, you know what, Craig, just tell your story, man. And people who want to read it will read it, those who don't want, and just go forward. And at least you would have known that this was a challenge that I wanted to do from a young age is to write a book and see my book in the library and see my book in the bookstore and 
get a chance to do a book tour, and now it's, it's coming to light. And I, I feel like it's a spiritual thing more than anything, man, and I'm getting a chance to actually put my work, put the the thoughts that I have on paper and, and, and share them with people. And it's been, it's been a warm welcome from the New Yorker to the Rolling Stone magazine, the Sports Illustrated, you know, moves that I didn't get when I played basketball that, <laughs> you know, I'm getting, I'm getting that type of uh, reception right now. So it's been cool, man. I thank God for it. Craig Hodges, author of the book, Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Now, stay tuned. We'll come back. Check out the stadium headlines on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Let's talk shop once again, and for that, we examine the week's stadium headlines with Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. StadiumsUSA.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information, and you can listen to the podcasts of our program each week. Test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site. Everything is right there at stadiumsusa.com. Well, Mark, it's a done deal now. You were the guy who weeks ago said this was a done deal, and it turned out to be exactly as you described it. The Oakland Raiders are leaving the Coliseum, and they will be headed to Las Vegas, but they have a couple of more years as a lame duck. Nothing beyond that. What's the story? Well, the Raiders play two more years in Oakland, Bill. They have a team option for an additional two seasons there, but not a third. Uh, the 2019 season is is out. They will not be in Oakland for that season. They will need a temporary facility to play at somewhere either in the Oakland area, possibly in the San Francisco Bay area, or possibly somewhere in the Las Vegas area. The possible temporary stadiums that they're going to be looking at, obviously AT&T Park, home of the San Francisco Giants, is a possible. It's right in town. It's close. It could be convenient. Mm -hmm. Or Levi Stadium, home of the 49ers, could work for them. We'll see what happens, but for two years, they will be definitely playing at the Oakland Coliseum as uh, lame duck tenants. Yeah, indeed, and lame duck situations, as history has shown us in the past, Mark, they can be uh, rather uncomfortable for all parties, shall we say. We certainly have a history of that, don't we? We do. ESPN senior writer Jeff Legwald wrote an excellent piece on lame duck football based on his coverage of the Houston Oilers move to Nashville. And I'm, I know you remember that well because sure you spent some time in Houston. What Jeff said was that the Raiders are in for a very tough time. The players, coaches, and front office people will be bombarded with questions about the move. The 2019 season really could be a nightmare 
fans of the Raiders will be bitter and they will express their displeasure. Then consider the crowd issues. The Oilers played their second lame duck season in front of crowds that averaged 20,000 or less. And the announced crowd for the final Oilers game at the Astrodome was only 15,131. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty ugly for an NFL game. It's a, it's a rough situation for the Raiders, and it certainly isn't going to be any fun for their fans, knowing that the team is there just temporarily and then scooting off to Vegas. Mark, if we look at this strictly from a financial point of view for the city of Oakland, is this addition by subtraction, if you will? Is there a windfall in there for the uh, the city of Oakland itself? Well, there are some that say that Oakland benefits from them moving out. There have been some that suggested the Raiders' departure gives a financial gain because the stadium's publicly owned. The truth is that the numbers will improve, but not dramatically. The Raiders are going to pay $7 million in rent and other concession fees for the upcoming 2017 season. But the conversion cost of that stadium is extremely high. Remember, this is the only stadium left in the United States that's used by both MLB and NFL. The estimates of the conversion costs from sport to sport are about $8 million a year. Mm. Now, somebody would say, why is it so expensive? Well, think of this. Just putting in the goalposts and taking out the goalposts every single week is a tremendous expense. And you have to get rid of the mound. And you have to try and do what you can about the infield Mm. and then rebuild the mound at the end. Um, for the Oakland A's. So now those numbers don't include the intangibles. The city of Oakland does get a lot of intangible revenue, sales tax revenue from restaurants and hotels from people attending the Raiders game. So that isn't figured into the equation. Mm -hmm. It's not a windfall for Oakland under any circumstances, but it does make life a lot easier at the Coliseum to have one tenant that plays only baseball and not have to convert that field over and over. Mark, the NCAA Final Four, of course, is taking place this weekend, and the University of Phoenix Stadium in suburban Phoenix, Glendale, Arizona, is playing as the host. This is an excellent venue. They have already hosted two Super Bowls, so they have a fair amount already under their belt. But this is different now. They're hosting basketball. It's a different setup. Fill us in on the transition for this. Well, the University of Phoenix Stadium has hosted basketball before, but never a Final Four. Mm. They did host a regional back in 2009, and uh, they had some familiarity with the conversion, but it was nothing like being set up for the Final Four. The Final Four involves a tremendous tremendous amount of uh, pre-tournament action as far as setting it up. The major conversion process is putting in the floor and the scoreboard. The floor this year is a specially made floor. It is much larger than an NBA floor. It's actually 140 feet long and 70 feet wide. It sits on a three-foot high stage. The floor was specially made in Michigan last uh, year in the fall, and then was shipped to Arizona Mm -hmm. uh, in pieces specifically for the Final Four. The second major change is the installation of this temporary scoreboard. The scoreboard is called the Colossus. It's a unit that was previously used at the Bristol Motor Speedway in Tennessee. Also, it was used at two outdoor NHL games. The Colossus is a gigantic sphere of of scoreboard electronics that uh, is a complete technological marvel. 
but it's not small. It weighs 700 tons. Mm. It's a major undertaking. Takes about two weeks of action to get everything done. But when it's done, it's going to be an amazing facility. And that University of Phoenix Stadium, we've both been there. It's yeah. really a tremendous facility. No doubt. It is state-of-the-art. It's a beautiful facility. They definitely got it right with that place. Speaking of getting it right, Mark, the Wayback Machine door is open. Let's you and I hop right in there and spin the dial and go back in time for some important dates in stadium history. What do you have this week? This week in 1984, Bill, in the middle of the night, Mayflower moving vans moved the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis, oh. a date that will live in infamy in Baltimore. Oh, the Colts will begin play the following season at the Indiana Hoosier Dome. And a lot of people in Baltimore remember that very well. Oh, I'll see. In 1991, the first ever baseball exhibition game is played at Miami's Joe Robbie Stadium. Of course, the venue has uh, been the longtime home of the Dolphins, now known as the Hard Rock Stadium. And I drove past it just a few weeks ago when I went to the World Baseball Classic in Miami. And it looks totally different with all that new roof going on. It's a very different looking structure. Hmm. And this week in 1997, the first game at Atlanta's Turner Field, the Braves beat the Yankees in an exhibition game. Funny, 20 years later, the Braves are playing the Yankees in an exhibition game at SunTrust, their new ballpark, exactly 20 years later. And before we get out of here, one final item, Stadium's USA Trivia. And Bill, this week, it's a batting practice fastball <laughs> for you. I'm due for one. Hope Hines Pavilion is the former home of which NBA team? Is it the Dallas Mavericks? Mm-hmm. Is it the Los Angeles Clippers? Mm-hmm. Is it the Houston Rockets? Mm-hmm. Or is it the San Antonio Spurs? Well, Judge Roy Hoffines would really let me have it if I messed up this one. He's no longer with us, of course, but uh, he was the driving force behind a lot of stuff in Houston, the judge was. And uh, the Houston Rockets played on that floor. It was prior to my arrival, Mark, and prior to the building of the Summit. They played in that building prior to going over to the summit. The summit itself has been taken out of service. And today on Highway 59, it sits as a mega church. Believe that one or not? Well, you are definitely correct. The Houston (laughs) Rockets used the venue from 71 through 1975 Mm. after moving to Houston from San Diego. Another team leaving San Diego. Uh, Hofheinz is now the current home of the University of Houston Cougars. And the men's and women's basketball teams play there. Good deal, Mark. Well, thank you. We will see you again next week. Enjoy the tournament, Bill. Yes, sir. I'm going to do that, Mark. Mark Madoran, we talk shop. Now, coming up, we're going to dig into sports logos, specifically NBA logos, with USA Today's Charlotte Wilder. What's in a logo? We'll find out next on SB Nation Radio. We've all seen them, the logos of the various teams of the National Basketball Association, and they are fascinating. Many of them have a unique ability by design to capture the essence of the franchise, the market, 
all of it. Recently, Charlotte Wilder uh, really dug into this story. She is a staffer for SB Nation. And a while back, she did a story for USA Today ranking the best and worst NBA logos. This is a big-time assignment right here. Charlotte, thanks for taking time to visit with us. You must have a real keen eye for this kind of stuff. Why did you want to do this? Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, So, I don't know. I've always been really fascinated by the sort of the visual aspect of sports um, and how logos, you know, take on and sort of reflect back on the teams that they represent. And um, Mm -hmm. it was sort of, for me, it was between visual art and being a writer when I was growing up um, and in college. And so I've always really liked the visual stuff. And I just think that the the NBA logos are also different. um, And some are so good and some are sort of like, what were you even thinking? So I thought it'd be a fun thing to just take a look at them. And people on the internet get really upset when you rank their team last. So <laughs> there's the there's the fan engagement too. I noticed one thing that you factored in here very strongly was the actual color. And starting right at the top, the Golden State Warriors, they have one of the most colorful of all logos. And I think that's one reason among many that you rated them so high. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that it's one of the best logos in sports. It the font is great, um, but the you know, it captures the image of the Golden Gate Bridge and these really sort of beautiful blues and yellows in a way that I think is just very visually pleasing. And I've always loved it. I always think that it's somewhat abstract, too. I mean, it's clearly the bridge, but it's off center and, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it feels like something you want to blow up and put on your wall. And I think it's really cool that they have that that sort of artistic sense on their uniforms. You rate the Atlanta Hawks, and their logo is being right up there. And to be honest with you, I hadn't paid much attention to that logo, but having a chance to look at it blown up where you can really see it, it's a very solid logo, and it kind of has a European tie to it. Yeah, they have basketball club written on it, which I just love. Um, It does look kind of like a European, sort of looks like a Premier League logo actually now that i think about it the denver nuggets have always had a great logo going back and you uh brought to the fore two logos that they have used in the past yeah no for sure i think that they have you know the mountains definitely give them something to work with um i love their logo now and i think that what it used to be was sort of a little more digitized almost. Um, mm-hmm. and it looked like sort of an 80s video game, which I always thought was fun. But I think the, the update sort of brings it much more into this century. Which logo surprised you the most when you really took a good look at them? Were there any among the NBA teams that caught your eye in this way? I thought the Wizards was really cooler than I'd ever paid attention to um, because they have the... Um, the Washington Monument in the middle of it, which mm-hmm. is sort of gets swallowed up by the fact that it's meant to look like a basketball. And then you look closely and you're like, oh, yeah, there's the city. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I also just, you know, I, I love the Pelicans, how they sort of uh-huh. incorporate some of the New Orleans 
fleur de lis in, in a very subtle way. Charlotte, the granddaddy of all the NBA logos, of course, belongs to the Boston Celtics, and it goes back to the very beginning of what we know as the modern NBA. How does this particular logo work today? I think it's fun. You know, you have the, it was designed actually by um, Brett Auerbrock's brother, which is really interesting to me. I'm from Boston, so I very much love this. Um, but it's it's Lucky, the mascot. Um, and I like that he is, I, I think that it's sort of a fun, cheeky dude that they've put in the center of the uniform. So <laughs> I think the timelessness of it is kind of, is kind of what keeps it going. The Chicago Bulls logo, which is the exact logo, or very close to, the original logo, uh, when they came online in the mid-60s, they have not changed it. Oh, I just think it's so fun, you know. It, it reminds people of what they've always known um, since the same logo since 1966. And, you know, it reminds you of all the, the six titles in eight years during the Michael Jordan era. That was the logo then. And it sort of uh, just carries this greatness with it that I think is really cool to have that continuity. You know, the uh, Los Angeles Lakers, of course, are one of the best-known teams in the NBA. That logo is very well-known. And yet, logo-wise, um, they were somewhat pedestrian as far as the way you rank them, kind of in the middle group. What's good, what's not so good about what the Lakers have going? I love their colors. I think the purple and the and the yellow really work well together. It's iconic. You know, it's the Lakers. I do think that the it's a little busy and that there are all these weird lines on the sides. Um, but you know, that's what they've got. So mm-hmm. I think it works. I think it's really a testament to the team that you see those yellows and that purple shade, and you're like, oh, the Lakers. You know, it's very recognizable. Well, Charlotte, it is wonderful to visit with you. This is a fascinating undertaking, and we suggest that everyone check it out. The article is at usatoday.com, ranking the best, worst NBA logos. And thank you for the visit. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. All right. I'm working on it right now. Charlotte Wilder (laughs) is our guest, and we thank her for her eagle eye digging into some of these team logos. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying we hope you enjoyed it. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead, so don't run away. It's coming your way right here on SB Nation Radio. University ever. Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. 
This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon.